0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our Vice President of Europe, Middle East, and Africa for the worldwide public sector Amazon Web Services, Max Peterson. Good
1: morning! It's always great to be able to join so many customers, so many, so many partners, so early in the morning. So I wanna say uh, you know, a, a big thank you, a big welcome uh, to everybody who's come here to join the Public Sector Breakfast. Um, the, the room just gets, keeps getting bigger and bigger and the things that our customers and partners are doing just keep getting more amazing. And so today we're gonna to have the opportunity to hear from some new voices, learn about exciting new launches, and really understand how this crowd of people is helping make the world a better place. But before we begin, I just need to thank a few of our partners and sponsors, because an event like this doesn't happen by magic. It doesn't happen alone. Um, Some of our marquee sponsors, Trend Micro, if you're looking for somebody who's deep in security, go see them. Datadog and New Relic. If you need to instrument your, uh, your cloud, if you need to understand with good data and analytics, you should talk to both of these folks. And VMware, of course, has got a significant partnership with Amazon to help people be able to migrate workloads seamlessly from their data centers to the AWS cloud. And then I also want to thank our co-sponsors, uh, C5 Capital, who's uh, a partner all around the world with us in helping startups. Uh, and and helping um, actually make the world a better place through programs like Peacetech, Infor, great partner, MemSuiteWall with databases, and Novetta, uh, one of our big consulting partners. So again, thank you to all of the sponsors, thank you to to all of the work that you're doing to help our customers get the most out of the cloud. And so without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the woman who has set up the AWS Public Sector Service, my good friend and longtime colleague. Please help me welcome Teresa Carlson to the stage.
2: Hey! Max will always dance with me, so that's good. He's, he's um, I've known Max for a very long time. Wow! Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to reInvent. Are you, are you having a good time? Are you learning? It's awesome, right? So I don't know if they've given official numbers, but i would heard something like 52,000 people are here this year. And I, I always have to go back in time because the first time we had this conference, there was little more than 5,000 individuals. Uh, now I have more than that at my public sector summit, thanks to all of you. And my breakfast may turn out being about that size hopefully some year. So thank you guys so much for coming. And as Max said, our breakfast theme this morning is Tech for Good. And I'm excited because I'm going to have five customers on stage. We're going to try to like zoom through this and keep you guys excited with lots of energy. So you can hear about what the customers are doing around the world to actually make the world a better place. And for some of you who don't know, for the second year in the row, we've been able to do this breakfast on Giving Tuesday. If you're a not-for-profit in the room, can you raise your hand? So, thank you all. Let's give all of our not-for-profits a big hand on all the work that they do uh, for giving back and building mission-critical solutions. And. Um, there was uh, last year, by the way, Giving Tuesday raised over $247 million for not for profits. And this year, I'm excited to say, as we talk to the team, my team, and our contribution of giving back, as we are with our commercial counterparts donating uh, $300,000 to support the victims of the recent California fires. And we'll be doing that through the American Red Cross and uh, the Information Technology Disaster Resource Center. So thank you all for all, all, everything you guys are doing. And Amazon employees have already donated tens of thousands of dollars. And soon we're gonna have uh, technical experts deployed in California to help rebuild the IT infrastructure. And already, Amazon has uh, deployed food and goods, and we've had tons of workers working around the clock. But of course, that's not enough, because so many of these families went without a home during Thanksgiving, and many have lost lost loved ones. So it's hard to be able to do enough. So this has been uh, a really tough disaster. And we encourage all of you guys to get involved in some way, shape, or form. Even if you can't give, uh, give your time, give your leadership, because I know all these not-for-profits really appreciate it. And in August, by the way, we officially launched our AWS Disaster Response Program. And this program provides support during and in aftermath. And our big goal is to help kind of pre-planning uh, for disaster so we can help actually before they get started. And I'll talk for a second about uh, how we can actually do that. And as I shared, in addition to this, we, have, we work with our counterparts on the Amazon retail side that delivers goods and food into these afflicted areas. Uh, and we, we go in and provide access to the infrastructure. We help them get that back up. We help them with critical data sets they need for information. So we provide, provide them credits, technical support and make sure that they have everything that they need to kinda get up and running. We've already trained 45 people who are technical, so again, we're just getting started. We're really young ourselves in doing this. Uh, Charlie Bell, who runs all of our services, his team has been supporting us and training his individuals, and we're gonna continue to do that. And the team has already built multiple call centers to support hurricane relief efforts. And they've used Amazon Connect. And this was always one of my hopes. I've worked with the Red Cross for many years. And I used to dream of a time when we could get a solution up and running that was repeatable that we could just do over and over. Well, guess what? We have it. With Amazon Connect, we've been able to get these call centers up and running in almost less than 48 hours which is unheard of, and we've been taking calls. We do around-the-clock, um, so 100 Amazon employees that participated in supporting these calls, and we've taken already 1,000 calls in as far as Singapore. So I really want to uh, thank all the Amazon employees for all the work that they've been doing. Uh, and I just want to say, if you guys want to get involved, I'd love to know how you all would like to get more involved in efforts in doing this. And then another area that you've heard us talk about a lot is bringing missing children home. This is like still unbelievable to me that we have no universal definition of missing children. And can you believe that most countries do not even have a comprehensive database of the children who are actually missing? And the ones that are missing, they're not shared. There's no good way to share this information around the world. When I'm around talking to every country, I have an opportunity. If it's a president, a prime minister, a key leader, I bring this issue up. Any law enforcement to say, how can we solve this problem? What can we do better together? Well, today, ICMIC, the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, is launching a new tool called GMC Engine, and it does two things. It scans millions of online images to find photos of missing children, and it places digital alerts about missing children in front of communities at the right time. And this goes really nicely. We've been working with a group, the not-for-profit team brought these individuals, uh, companies and not-for-profits together a few years ago, and we have another group, Thorn, that we've worked with that has a, a tool called Spotlight, where we have identified and brought home close to 21,000 individuals, 6,000 of those being children, and we're not doing enough. And that's scanning horrible images every day on the dark web and looking at ads and trying to use technology for good, machine learning, applications that really help us find these children. And you all can get involved, and we all need to kind of be asking these questions. How do we do this better? Well, there's one individual who I've known now for a while, Ambassador Mara Hardy, who is the president and CEO of the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and she spent a lot of her career working on this. So, Mara, I'd like to welcome you to the stage and give the team have, give the team an update.
3: Thank you so much, Teresa, for that lovely introduction, and I'm thanking you all for being here at this early hour. It's really a great pleasure to be here with you. Teresa, more than most, understands why we at ICMEC do what we do, because as a member of our board, she knows very well that a missing child is a vulnerable child, and the question about definition, and the question about accountability and how we take care of children who have gone missing, how we pay attention to the fact that children have gone missing is something that needs more attention all around the world. One of the biggest reasons for that, of course, is that that vulnerability has dramatic and chilling connotations. And excuse me for raising this at a breakfast meeting, but what are some of those connotations? When a child isn't where they're supposed to be, they might have been trafficked. They may have been engaged in all kinds of behavior they don't want to be engaged in. Child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation, prostitution, common criminality. They may even face death. And so it's incumbent upon all of us, and one of the things that ICMEC does is to try and build a community, not only to raise awareness and action on the subject of missing, which after all is a little bit akin to a gateway for other terrible things that can happen to children, but it is exactly what ICMIC does, is pay attention to those issues. And so our mission is to eradicate child sexual abuse and exploitation and to eradicate the notion of children going missing. That is why for almost 20 years now we have advocated around the world for changes in child protection laws to make every nation pay attention to whether or not on the books they have the laws they need so that law enforcement can do their jobs in protecting children. That is why over the past 20 years, we have played a role in seeing more than 130 countries improve their child protection legislation or write legislation they didn't have. We've even helped, in some instances, to write that legislation. That is why ICMEC and its its team, have trained over 15,000 law enforcement officers around the world over the last dozen years or so to give them the knowledge they need to spot child abuse, child sexual exploitation, and to also pay attention to the victims in those cases. And of course, something we don't always think about, to also pay attention to the police officers themselves, the first responders who do this terribly hard work to make sure that they themselves are also Uh, being taken care of and not so scarred by the work that they do. That is why ICMEC, over the last several years, created a network of 55,000 international schools which use our education portal on our website, icmec.org, because teachers and school administrators need also to understand What is the incidence of missing? What happens when a child goes missing? How do we spot child abuse? And most important, how do we listen to a child and respond appropriately? And that is why today we're announcing, as Teresa just has announced, the GMC engine, our global missing children network is made up right now of 29 different countries on five different continents. We have aspirations for that number to grow dramatically, in part thanks to this GMC engine. What is it going to do? There's a practical answer and there's a heartfelt answer. I guess they're both heartfelt. But the heartfelt one is it's going to give hope. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. When I was an active duty officer, one of the things we learned when children went missing again and again and again was that parents would say to us, um, thank you for what you tried yesterday. Tell me what you're doing today. And if it doesn't work today to find my child, what are you doing tomorrow? And so. Teresa said she had a dream, and so did I, about this GMC engine, about something, I didn't call it that in those days, but about some way of saying to a parent, we're gonna figure this out. We're going to be as relentless in searching for your child as you are yourself until we bring your child home. And so here today we have the great good luck and honor and privilege of working with AWS and recognition technology so that the database of the databases of those 29 member countries in our in our network can provide us the information we need so that the gmc engine can search as relentlessly as that parent would scraping the dark and clear web over and over again and again with the goal of giving law enforcement or an ngo partner we have somewhere in the world another clue, another lead, another something they wouldn't have followed. And in many cases, law enforcement around the world is a little bit um, uh, under-resourced, shall we say. So that what we're doing in creating this particular tool is allowing them access to something they might never otherwise have had. And that clue that comes up through a GMC engine search might be just the thing they need to connect some dots and reunite a child with their parents or their other family members. So it is, as I said, a great privilege to be here today, a great privilege to tell you about that. We're excited, I'm excited to tell you that at the same time we've launched here today, we have a conference in Spain and the Spanish Interior Ministry is giving us our international launch simultaneously. We're excited, we're thrilled, we welcome you to that community of people who believe that in bringing to bear tech for good, what we're really also doing, is helping to create a world that is actually worthy of its children. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mara. That was
2: awesome. So I'm thrilled to be able to work with ICMIC and just support this effort. And I think the more we can again proliferate this data out to every location around the world and do data sharing and actually begin to use the technology we can drive real change here. Please uh, consider uh, supporting ICMIC today on Giving Tuesday. And here's their site if you want to do, if you want to donate.icmic.org. So from day one, we've always said that we've been committed to building and putting tools together that directly we put into your hands so that you can build a better world. I love the fact that at AWS, we're builders, and we're allowing our customers and partners to be builders, to move faster, to do things that they really need to do to invest in their world to do what they need to do much faster with the programs that they need to realize the goals. And on that, just last month, we launched GovCloud East. Yes, this was like a number one request from our customers. Now, I had a lot of people ask, well, why did you launch another region? And I said, because the first one was so successful. We had over 185% uh, year-over-year growth in GovCloud West and based on customer need, we listened to our customers and we launched a new region. And it has all the benefits of GovCloud West, Three availability zones, dozens of AWS services and features were launched um, at the same time. Regional diversity, COOP disaster management, which was a big reason that our customers wanted this, for sensitive and regulated workloads that they needed. Um, Additional high availability that was required during disaster recovery. And of course, it has FedRAMP, DOD SGR, ITAR, CGIS. IRS 1075, FIPS, and many other compliance uh, automation tools are available uh, in GovCloud East. So we were really excited to get that up. And just a couple of quick examples, one of our favorite customers, of course, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is a really great example of a customer using this for Vets.gov. They modernize vets.gov to get our to give our veterans easier access to healthcare benefits and information they need at critical times. And by leveraging GovCloud East, the VA, they'll continue to optimize on cloud, online, and add new components to that experience. And we're also seeing groups like police departments who need the CJIS capabilities, including the Indiana State Police, who uses GovCloud to drive innovation while they store and analyze that CJIS information that they need. Lots of more case studies that I could give you on uh, GovCloud. We have so many. Some we can't talk about, some we can't talk about. And we've launched more than 60 services in GovCloud in 2018 and counting. And many of these services are already FedRAMPed. You can see there from the one star, they're already FedRAMPed high authorized and the two star, they're in process. So services like Amazon Poly, uh, AWS Lambda, Amazon Inspector are currently in the JAB review and we expect to have that high authorization any day. But another thing that I that I think is like super interesting is that As you know from day one, we've always been very committed to our SaaS offerings. And this is the one area that I noticed literally in the last year with our partners that have continued to add their services into GovCloud. So the SaaS offerings really continue to grow and I want to thank those partners that we've been working with as they continue to grow their services in GovCloud for the customer and uh, based on the regulated workloads and we've taken that very seriously and we're kind of proud of the success we have to date but again we're just getting going. So when you look across GovCloud you can see here this is GovCloud in our commercial regions. You see 56 FedRAMP authorized solutions running on AWS and over 200 authorizations by agencies running their solutions. And we have a lot more than any other cloud provider. You can see the two right there, but this is how committed and how fast we are running to continually be out in front. And by the way, that is based on your all's feedback to us and the work that we're doing together. So thank you again. Now the other thing, thank you, John. (laughs) The other thing, uh, speaking of Telos and and our partners here, Another solution that that I heard a lot from you all at the Worldwide Public Sector Summit that kind of stunned me, was how slow the FedRAMP authorization process was moving and why that was like such a problem, right? If you can't get through the authorization, it's really slowing you down to be able to launch those services quickly. That requires a comprehensive set of skills to be able to navigate this super complex process. And it's most certainly unpredictable at times and it's a high cost to the partner themselves and to our customers. So a lot of times these barriers really prevent the customer from moving fast in the government space. But today we're announcing ATO on AWS. So I don't know, as long as you guys know, authority to operate on AWS. And this program will reduce the cost of meeting compliance requirements and accelerate the time to actually launch those solutions in real production. Uh, Our ISVs that use this program will receive training, tools, pre-built artifacts uh, for the solution providers themselves, guidance from AWS on how to help achieve and meet those compliance requirements, and support from AWS partners who are part of our security automation and orchestration initiative. And um, those partners uh, in the room today, uh, Rackspace, Telos are uh, in support and they have a whole program that helps expedite. So we work in partnership with our programs to make this a reality. Is Smartsheet in the room? Is Ben Canning here? All right, so this is like one of my very favorite stories because after hearing the nightmares of FedRAMP taking two years or more, we were able to work with our partner Smartsheet and get them through the journey of FedRAMP in less than 90 days. Is that not amazing? Do you agree? That's like pretty amazing. That, that's a very short window. Um, and Smartsheet literally went from no presence in GovCloud to building and performing at full Fed ramp in less than 90 days. That is our goal, to get our partners and our customers moving much faster. So Smartsheets VP of Product Infrastructure, like I said, Ben is here and his team. So if you're interested, talk to Ben on their incredible journey and what they've been doing. It's been a lot of fun to watch this really rapidly take shape. And as I mentioned earlier, when you leverage ATO and AWS, you're tapping into a community of partners Um, in our security automation orchestration initiative. But just as important as supporting our partners is directly really supporting those ISVs. So again, is uh, Rackspace and Telos in the room? I know John, tell us, I know Frackspace, but they're our partner and they're launching a three-step FedRAMP program, which includes training, a gap analysis, and support of ISVs to build and manage their FedRAMP compliant AWS infrastructure. And I have seen this firsthand, We've worked with them in our intelligence community, in our defense community, and we move very fast when we work together. So again, better together, right? So to get started and to learn more, you can go to ATO on AWS at Amazon.com. So now another individual that is amazing, I've already had my first amazing woman up here, now I get to have a second amazing woman. Christina Halverson, who's a Deputy Assistant Director of Counterterrorism at the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, Christine has done amazing work at the bureau, driving innovation, using our C2S region, and they use GovCloud at the FBI. And she's gonna explain to you how that what they're doing to keep our country safe in the U.S. and the work that they're doing on counterterrorism. Christina, please welcome to the stage. Oh, thank
4: you. So thank you for having me here today and the opportunity to talk to you about the FBI and our year-long journey in our counterterrorism division on adopting cloud technology and the reason why we're doing it. So first, I just want to start with a quick, quick minute to go over our mission statement. It's very simple, right? Protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. One sentence. But it's not simple in this day and age, and it hasn't been simple in our 110 years since we've been an agency. We have 56 field offices spread across the country, but that doesn't include our satellite offices. We have 90 legal attaches, those are our overseas offices that we support as well. With that, we investigate counterterrorism matters, counterintelligence matters, cybercrime, and the rest that you see up there are, are criminal. Investigations, as well as our Weapons and Mass Destruction Directorate. A very big mission for 35,000 employees. The world has changed. The threat continues to evolve every single day, and technology is what is driving the threat today. When I started 20 years ago in the Bureau, a little over 20 years ago, don't age me, I worked gangs in New York City. And the biggest technology challenge we had, at least I had working gangs, it's like the wire, guys. They carried pagers, and they, in order to subpoena the pagers and get the numbers that were coming into the pagers, those numbers were getting resold like every two days. And the hardest challenge was tracking what company that pager was sold to so I could issue a legal process. Slowly it went to flip phones, right? So same kind of problem, flip phones, trying to get up on the phones. And then now we're in a different world completely different world now when we do investigations not only when we do the investigations do we have to look at the person in their physical world who are they meeting physically but the virtual world has taken over the amount of data we gain from the virtual world is tremendous so when we conduct investigations now we can't just look at the person we have to look at their online presence as well and who are their networks online and that world the 90 legal attaches and the 56 field offices the world has become so much smaller because they can reach out and they can direct threats from anywhere in the world using social media or the technology that we have developed that we like but also sometimes it hurts us. Take this slide in for a moment. This is the most disturbing slide for the last year. What this means to me is I've been working counterterrorism. I was in the New York field office when 9 11 happened, and we failed then. I joined the counterterrorism mission at that time, and to me, this means I'm still failing. I have an eight and 10 year old. I have an eight year old girl and a 10 year old boy. They don't know a world without terrorism in it. Please help me and not fail, right? These incidents have changed lives forever. These were the people that were the unknowns and the knowns. And what I mean by that is someone had them in their holdings. They were in the data. But we didn't put the puzzle together quick enough to stop these tragic events from happening. And when we talk about the puzzle pieces, right the pieces of data that lead to intelligence, when we talk about that, it's not just in the FBI's holdings, right? think bigger than that. We have to fix the FBI's data, but it's in the USIC holdings, it's in our local and state partners holdings, it's in the private sector holdings, right? NGO holdings, it's all there. But we don't have the ability to put the pieces of the puzzle together right now because it's all being held separately. For the Boston Marathon bobbing, the Sardinov brothers, at that time when we conducted that investigation, we collected over 50 terabytes of data after the incident happened, right? We knew about them before. The Russians told us about them. So foreign partners holding data as well. We did an investigation of what we could at that time of the data that we had. But then we found out our local and state had information on them as well. The universities had information on them as well that if we had those pieces to the puzzle, we might have been able to do something before the attack happened. But 50 terabytes of data. And what happens, yeah, on the news, you see the arrests happening, but our investigation doesn't stop because we have to make sure that there weren't others, there's not additional planning, there wasn't networks that supported this. So to get through that data is a challenge for us. During the Sardinov Brothers investigation, the Boston bombing, we threw resources at it. The answer for the FBI is throw bodies at it, right? But the investigators and analysts were completely overwhelmed by the volume of data collected in that short amount of time for us to get through it quickly. They were using boards to put photos up, cardboard boxes to put photos up. So remember when I said the threat continues to evolve? The new norm is what you saw a year ago here in Vegas, Stephen Paddock. Right, and the tragedy that happened here. In that investigation, five years after Boston, we collected a petabyte of data. Just five years later after Boston, the FBI is in a data crisis, and the solution is the adoption of cloud technology, within the Counterterrorism Division, with our Information Technology Branch, and our OCIO's office. Moving the cloud is the core part of the FBI's technology vision for good reason. But how do we get there in counterterrorism in less than a year is really what I wanna talk to you about today. First, the culture change, right? We all know it's a culture change. There's been some talks already uh, yesterday on culture change. We were running a data center at the counterterrorism division. And so we shut down that data center to move to the cloud. With that, we had a reduction in cost of 98% of manual workload, 98% of our analysts and and agents spending time, 98% of that was reduced. 70% cost reduction by getting rid of that data center and going to the cloud. With that cloud adoption, though, comes changes in processes. You can't continue to use the same processes you used before. You can't lift and shift, right? So the next cultural shift was the makeup of our investigative teams. This was key to our success. We have embedded data scientists with engineers, with agents, with analysts, sitting together now in the counterterrorism division to to go after the threat. That was essential to communication. It was essential to how we build things. But we didn't learn it well, because in the first 30 days of standing up our team to go to cloud adoption, we actually failed. The good news is we failed fast, um, but we failed. We didn't have the right team makeup at all. But by failing fast and correcting that, we actually are stronger for today, and we're able to actually move forward using those what we learned there and the failures there and moving forward and how we've set up the teams through our counterterrorism division. What's happened because we've set up these teams is everybody's a builder now. The analysts from the lowest level, lowest grade level to the highest grade level. Everybody's a builder and everybody knows this is the way to move forward and how to get there and how to solve the problem. The next cultural shift though we had was the stovepipes between the technologists and the operators, right? In the FBI, we had a system where you would submit up requirements, requirements would go up, and the technologists would build it, and then they would come back down. It was a good model way back in the day when we didn't have to have agile development, but with agile development today, you need the operators sitting with the technologists in our information technology branch, and we have embedded people in there breaking down those stovepipes. Now we have teams working in an integrated fusion center type concept. And what we've done there, it's, it's worked. It's working very well. So the counterterrorism division did a study. The FBI is building its data lake right now. We did a study of which data sets give us the most derogatory information on our subjects. So where do we get the next threat? Right? Where do we get the next person that's going to do something? And we studied that. And now we've worked with our information technology branch and OCIO's office in order to prioritize those data sets into the data lake versus putting other data sets in first, which was the plan. So the most valuable data sets are going in first. Huge step forward. Doesn't mean the rest of them won't come behind, but huge step forward. We are allowing the intelligence from our investigations to drive technology and technology to enable the operations to the end product, right? That is the flow. That is the cycle that we need to follow. One of the things you need to note, too, is when we did the shift and we respond to critical incidents, we actually embedded our data scientists now in our command centers. So 24-7 command centers running, we have a data scientist 24-7 churning through the data so they can normalize the data to get in the hands of the operators as quickly as possible. We did this in Las Vegas, and we actually just did it in their recent uh, package bomb investigation, which, if you noticed, we solved that pretty quickly. So really learning through how we do it and putting those people there to help us solve these. The other piece that we've done in the counterterrorism division as well is we actually have a data science training program. The data science training program, we have an academy now. I don't, we didn't care what grade level you were, what your background was. If you wanna learn how to be a data scientist, you were eligible for this program. We have 64 individuals just in the counterterrorism division going through the data science program right now. Awesome. Truth be told, when we, when we started it, I thought it would be like 10 or 12, and then when I saw the list of 64, I was floored. So people are recognizing this is where we need to be. The goal of the program is to get the data in the hands of the operators that need it so they can quickly action it. So how do we build all this? It's really the right people with the right partners and the right services that enable us to put intelligence into the hands of those operators. We're working diligently with Amazon, Novetta, and Infosoul to ensure that we're, the road to cloud is really easier and more streamlined in the FBI. I have to tell you, and this big shout out, I can't thank Novetta enough for their partnership. They believe in the counterterrorism mission and they believe in the FBI mission. I have my folks, my analysts coming up to me, telling me how much Novetta has encouraged them to continue forward in the mission. That in itself is a true partnership. But we're not done. Our next step is AMI, AMI, we've already started down this path and we're leveraging again what we know, our builders, our agents, our analysts, our data scientists together as a team attacking the threat and we are excited about the opportunities that this is gonna provide to the FBI. I'll give you an example as well on that. So for the Las Vegas shooting, we had agents and analysts, eight eight per shift working 24/7 for over three weeks going through the video footage of everywhere Paddock was a month leading up to him coming and doing the shooting. If we had loaded that up in the cloud, the estimate was it would have taken us a day using Amazon recognition to recognize where he was in the videos. That's all we were trying to do, was narrow down where in the videos he was and who he was meeting with to make sure there wasn't anybody else part of the conspiracy. Think about that. Eight people a shift, 24-7 a day for almost a month, going through those videos just to narrow it down. And in one day, with Amazon recognition, we could have done it. A lot of manpower. And think about it too, when you take that manpower and you put it on something like that, The other cases that we have, they don't stop going. The subjects don't just back and say, the FBI's busy over there. We're gonna stop doing bad things while they're busy. Right? The threat keeps going. So being able to not pull people off of that, right, and have computers do it for us and the cloud technology do it for us is very, very important. So just to end, We have adopted the cloud technology. We've changed the culture and Counterterrorism division with the help of our partners and we're moving forward. But we can't do it alone. And so remember, we are all builders and we must continue to build. It's one small win each day. It's one small connection each day to our partners and sharing of that intelligence to get us to the end goal of where we need to be. And sometimes it's two steps back I'm very happy about the ATO process, so that's one step forward today. <laughs> but I just want to play you this small clip. It's Admiral McRaven. If you McRaven. Make your bed every
5: morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact
4: So small changes, good news here, you're all staying at hotels, you don't have to make your bed today, someone else will make it for you. (laughs) But just to end, in the counterterrorism division, the will to succeed in our business saves lives. So next year, my goal is to come up on this stage and give you a blank slide. I want that slide blank. If we can do that, then we can change the world. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. That was awesome. <clears throat> That's pretty awesome, huh? Even for, I'm like, wow. Um, and, I, and I do try to make my bed every day. <laughs> but anything worth doing um, well, getting it done, is doing it right. And I think this is just a great example of seeing an important mission done right and the steps that the FBI is taking to drive change and catch the bad guys uh, more rapidly with the technology that they need that then hopefully helps them continue to catch the next one and the next one faster and faster with knowledge through machine learning and tools and capabilities that they didn't have um, previously. So, now, the story of innovation is not limited to the United States, of course. We have customers around the world doing absolutely amazing things. When we continue to expand our global footprint, AWS now provides 57 availability zones in 19 geographic regions around the world. And did you know that the public sector team has employees in 28 countries, and we have customers in 174 countries? If you had told me that eight years ago, I would have went, no way. So that's how the cloud is kicking in and catching on around the world with our public sector customers. But we also have another 15 availability zones in five regions coming online before the first half of 2020. They're Bahrain, Hong Kong, South Africa, Sweden, and of course, one of my favorite places, Milan, Italy. So, all all coming soon, and you'll all be able to utilize, store, and process your data there. And we also continue to grow our Public Sector Partner Program. I know that many of our partners got together yesterday. Thank you for all of you who are in the room. And we have grown our public sector partner program, the APM program, to more than 800 partners, and so more than 40% in just a single year. And of course, this is not for the faint of heart. There's a process you have to go through, and you have to be committed to wanting to be a public sector partner. And we have partners from around the world doing this, uh, partners in Belgium like Radix.ai, who's developed a deep learning model that actually connects people to jobs faster. And in Mexico, two AWS partners, ITR and NBEST, to help the National Electoral Institute report this year's federal election results, which many are running on AWS. So we now even have elections around the world being run and tabulated on the cloud. And I remember a day when people said that would never happen. But when we talked to our customers, they're like, we got the data, it's fast, and we can analyze it. And then one of the areas that we started just a few years ago was supporting the growing community of startups in the public sector space. Because one of the things that actually changed was the fact that I was talking to venture capitalists, private equity firms, and just companies that were bootstrapped on their own that wanted to do work in public sector or who actually had a mission directly that had been developed for public sector. And through our programs like AWS Activate and AWS Edstart for education tech companies, we're supporting the growth of these startups around the world. Companies like madu.com got started with AWS Activate. And it's now the world's largest Arabic language content platform. In Japan, AWS EdStart sta- uh, helped a company called Benessei Career, which is a build platform that connects more than 200,000 students to job recruiters in more than 4,000 companies. So, and then we re- then we've continued to. Re- uh, support different groups around startups and there's one program that i'm really fond of called responders venture public safety fund and that's an accelerator uh, called responder x labs and this program actually helps entrepreneurs with resources to commercialize and scale public sector technology would you have ever thought of hearing about something like that even like six years ago literally incubators labs that are just dedicated to companies wanting to work in the public sector space. We need more of that, because we need to help our customers move faster with technology. So our goal with this program is to have more than 400 public safety companies come through this accelerator over the next two years. And I could share many, many more of these stories, but I'd like you to hear directly from the customers.
3: We're transforming the lives of ourselves, of those around us in our Alberta communities, and we're transforming communities because now our learners utilizing AWS cloud technologies can learn from wherever they live, no matter how remote the community is.
5: Really, we're looking at serverless and uh, event-driven computing as, as, as a big frontier for us. So when we start talking about being able to look to the future, Incorporating genome sequencing into healthcare, doing personalized medicine for cancer treatments. That really rests on a lot of this infrastructure.
0: The way we looked at cloud was that it matched our uh, effort to become customer first, that allowed us to be free to serve customers in, in a modern way, not locked into your office, to your desk, to be where your customers are. Utilizing and partnering with Amazon Web Services' Sumerian product, we've been able to empower care providers across the country to use templates of VR experiences to create hyper-personalized VR experiences for patients everywhere. The Alexa skill um, that we built on AWS has helped us
3: democratize data in a way that, that we weren't able to before.
1: The cloud on its weakest day is more secure than a client-server solution. We can now leverage a worldwide workforce with no latency, dragging down huge files and doing analysis and have answers by Saturday morning. That's what the cloud does for us.
2: Thank you to those customers. Wow, when I hear these, they're all humbling because I do have to tell you, there was a day that I was told no one would ever do a case study about cloud computing. That's kinda changed, which I'm really proud because we're helping really change and make things move faster. And another way that we're doing this, by the way, is doing open data sets. This was another little project of ours that we did almost seven years ago where we said, hey, we believe That if we open data sets up and make them available to the public, to researchers, to government, that could drive real change. And I tell this story often, but the first one we did did was the Thousand Genome Project at the National Institutes of Health, where we went there. Brett McMillan's saying, yeah, we went to NIH and said, we want to make a copy of the Thousand Genome Dataset and put it into the AWS cloud and open it up to everybody. We did it. The first week we opened it up, we had over 3,400 new researchers crowdsourced on that data set. Now, we've moved way beyond that today, way beyond what that did. Now, there's so much more amazing data, um, but, but just really incredible in terms of all the stories. And open data is key to advancing, by the way, understanding in many ways on the Earth, the galaxy, science, medicine, everything around us. And a few weeks ago, we added 19 new data sets to our open data set called the AWS Open Data Registry. And the, we do this for free. We put all this on in our own dime so that you guys can take advantage of this. And uh, they join many more on this registry already, including images of the Hubble Telescope, which are pictured right here. So I encourage you all to go learn more. And Tom Sostrom, Tom smile and wave and say hi to everybody. Tom is a legend here. Uh, when I was talking about GovCloud, it was actually NASA, JPL, Tom and Jim Rinaldi that came to us uh, eight years ago and told us we needed an ITAR region. And we really listened to them and built this in a very short period of time. We have uh, threw a lot of feedback, we made a lot of changes, and now we have our second region, Tom. But yesterday, I had the honor and opportunity. Tom is every year, uh, this is, I think the third or fourth year, he and I will be speaking this afternoon with a group of students, which they always love to hear Tom uh, that we bring, and he talks about NASA and everything that all the cool stuff NASA's doing. But yesterday, I had the honor to sit with him as we landed the insight on Mars. Did you guys see that? Was that not amazing? I was in our own command room right here in Las Vegas with Tom as we watched it. And we had a simultaneous cast across five hotels and, of course, around the world. And, of course, it's our honor, Tom, to be able to participate with NASA, JPL, on such an exciting event. And it's been now one of many for us. So I feel like we're still on an early journey, though. So thank you for all your support. Um, and then finally, we've joined forces with the group on, with the group on Earth Observation to launch a new grant program for data, both that's going to be, again, open and accessible. And grants will go to organizations from low- and middle-income countries to help them analyze the Earth Observation data. Because believe it or not, what we find when we go around the world, there's all this amazing data, and there's no ability to actually process store analyze this data and we're like oh my gosh this is like getting lost so we're we're now taking on a program and uh, for many countries they'll be doing this actually for the very first time so we're already seeing the results the african region has a data Cube program and it's a platform that we're supporting through technical and inc- uh, support and credits to help africa look at Uh, areas for deforestation in Kenya, illegal mining in Ghana, and access to fresh water in the world's uh, second largest refugee camp. So these are kind of some of the things we're trying to do to really bring technology around the world to enable these areas to have understanding of more information. And now the next speaker I'm bringing to the stage, uh, Frank. Uh, Booskay is from the World Bank and he is the Director of uh, Conflict and Violence and he's, he's joining us here to tell us about all their work that they're actually doing around the world to help with conflict and violence. So Franck, please welcome to the stage.
5: All right, good morning, everybody. A Pleasure to be with you all today. Uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, fragility, conflict, and violence, but more talk about famine. Uh, however, the two are very closely linked, as you're going to hear in a few minutes. A little more than a year ago, the international community faced a devastating crisis. More than 20 million people across four countries, Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen were at risk of famine. The World Bank, with our humanitarian, government, development partners, responding to the suffering, providing a package of $1.8 billion of support to those countries, avoiding what could have been a catastrophic (laughs) loss of life. But in many ways, we, meaning the international community, still failed. Failed in a sense that livelihoods were destroyed, failed in the sense that affected people slipped further into poverty, and failed in the sense that too many lost their lives. In the 21st century, famine remains one of the greatest challenges of our time. Today, 124 million people across 50 countries face crisis levels of hunger, requiring immediate humanitarian assistance. Famine increased child mortality by roughly 60%, and the child born during a famine can see her or his lifetime income reduced by more than 13%. What we know is that today famine actually, and that's the link with the presentation, first and foremost, political. For example, as shown on this screen, all those years mark the occurrences of famine since the 1980s. And those in red, right now, were actually the result of direct or indirect result of conflict. So actually the most important thing that you can do to prevent famine is actually to tackle the root cause of famine, meaning to stop the underlying conflict. But we know that we cannot just wait for peace. We know that we have to ensure that people living today in conflict have also access to all the help that they need. Therefore, Last year, the international community came together to commit to a zero tolerance for famine and pledged to do more and do it better and get ahead of those events. Over the last few months, we have made significant progress on this commitment. With heads of the United Nations agencies, the international community of the Red Cross and global tech partners, including AWS, we announced our strategic plan for making that commitment a reality. The result is the Famine Action Mechanism, or FAM, which is the first global partnership dedicated specifically to preventing famine and supporting preparedness and early action. The FAM seeks to address some of the most significant challenges to end famine. One challenge is that currently, early warnings do not translate into early action. Funds financing only begin to flow, unfortunately, when we see pictures of children starving on television. This goes against everything we know about prevention. Prevention is about saving lives. Prevention is also, financially speaking, about saving 30% of humanitarian cost. One of the clearest examples of the cost of those delays happened in Somalia seven years ago. Famine was officially declared on July 20, 2011. But during the prior year, there had been 78 bulletins and over 50 briefings alerting us on the threat of famine. This delay and the lack of corresponding actions contributing to the tragic loss of over a quarter of a million people. Our collective action last year was actually much better, especially because in Somalia, we had a strong government support. But still, at the end of the day, we are facing the same situation with funding and action coming way too late. And this is where the FAM, the famine action mechanism comes into play. The FAM aims to really shift the paradigm from late response, as we have seen, to a comprehensive agenda of famine prevention, preparedness, and early action. How can we do this? First, we need more financing, obviously. But more importantly, I would say, financing that would be multi-year, more predictable, and much earlier on to really provide support, taking care of all the investment that are needed to tackle the root cause of famine. Globally, the World Bank, over the past 10 years, has invested roughly $3 billion uh, uh, every year on operations dealing with food and security but half of those operations are actually including measures responding to crisis. The objective with the FAM is to move the needle upstream, is to ensure that we do a better job allocating those resources at an earlier stage. Second, we need to build a system, a system that prioritises the release of pre-agreed funding when a famine alert is issued. And that's where the FAM can create this link. In short, we need to get away from responding late where we are forced to pass around the hat and begin thinking like an insurer. When there is a claim, we are covered. To do this, if we really hope to move financing upstream, we also need to be very confident about our early warning system. Right now, the international community conducts many types of assessment, comprehensive assessments of food insecurity, of drought, of death from violent conflict, and in some cases, it takes a lot of time and resource to update those assessments. The FAM is attempting to help complementing all those efforts and translate famine early warning system into more continuous robust signals with the assistance of disruptive technology such as artificial intelligence and machine learning to link the data with prearranged financing and early action at the country level. Let's look at Somalia as an example. Major reports are actually on the state of food and security provided every six months, twice a year. These reports are the results of intensive efforts among our partners, WFP, FAO, who are doing a fantastic job, who go on the field in countries and communities, conduct surveys, aggregate those reports, and come to an assessment about the level of food and security throughout the country. Each one of those dots that you see on the screens is actually the result of that process, estimating the percentage of the population at the country level in crisis level of food insecurity. Those efforts are actually providing a good picture of what is happening on the ground. But what would be even better would be actually to know the level of food insecurity at any given point of time. To do this, however, requires significant amount of time and effort. Building on existing systems such as IPC and Fusenet, which are providing excellent data, and through our partnership with AWS and other global tech firms, the firm aims at filling in the gaps between the major reporting cycles and providing real-time information that is represented by this blue line on the screen. Disruptive technology using data from all types of sources are helping to improve both the accuracy and the frequency which is extremely important. In addition, these tools are also helping us to drill from the country level to the sub-national level. And this is exactly what the white line represents, representing the focus on districts that requires urgent attention, such as the one which is in red on the screen. Our initial work is promising, and we are also building on models that will help us to provide real-time forecasts six months out, so really, a Significant shift from more a static view to a dynamic, allowing to use leverage data to forecast and take action and looking, uh, focusing much more on prevention. We also know that getting better in terms of data and getting better in terms of providing financing is not all. We also need to take action. The FAM is actually a global partnership, and I think that's extremely important. Global partnership that aims to improve coordination among all actors at the global and national level. And you can see all the partners that are on this screen. So above all, I would say that the FAM is about making the connection, and that's why it is extremely important. Connection between the data, the financing, and action. At the World Bank, our dream is a world free of poverty. Talking about dream, Teresa. That's our dream. And that goal is impossible when famines threaten lives, livelihoods, and the stability of countries and regions. Ultimately, we have here an opportunity to prevent one of the greatest tragedies of the world today. And the fam, in partnership with AWS and others, can make it a reality. Famine is our collective failure. Preventing it requires a collective solution. Join us to end famine once and for all. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. That would be great to end famine. That was wonderful. Amazing information. Well, um, kind of as we progress through our journey now, let's jump. Are you all awake? Right? Everybody's awake. We still have lots of good data here, but we're not going to keep you forever because there's a lot more that we need you to get going with today. But we have some really great staff still. Now let's talk about building cloud skills. Let's get into the cloud skills. And as we do that though, I wanna share this past year in 2018, we welcomed more than 16,000 attendees, not not even accounting today, to public sector summits around the world, we had six. And we set a new record with tens of thousands of attendees at our public sector summit in Washington, D.C. Next year, we're gonna add two more public sector summits, one in Bogota, Colombia, and the other one in New Delhi, India. So we'll have, we'll have um, eight next year. So we're really excited about that. I'm not going to get to all of them. I couldn't this year. We've outgrown me being able to go to all of them, but I get kind of bummed when I can't show up and I think I pout for a couple of days because I really want to get to every one of these countries and every one of these sessions just to see what's kind of happening. But in order to really foster this experience uh, with our not-for-profits, this last year, some of you I know were at the Imagine Conference, our third ever. We launched the Imagine Grant Program and we gave a monetary grant to not-for-profits, and we were so impressed, by the way, of the quality of responses and their proposals. But I'm thrilled today that we have six winners. I don't know if they're in the room. If they are, please stand up. Replate, PATH, Community Connect Labs, Ushahidi, Tarjali, and the Urban Institute. Let's give all of these a big round of applause. We're really excited for them to kick off their projects and they're from everywhere around the world. And we also continue to bring America's veterans into the technology workforce. I think this is something we're all really passionate about. And this year in the AWS public sector business, we've hired just under 15% of those employees across all the employee base for public sector have been veterans and their spouses. So I'm excited. So my organization continues to grow with our uh, military veterans and their spouses. And we have more than 18,000 veterans and spouses that work across Amazon. And more than 150 veterans are enrolled in Amazon's technical, veteran technical apprenticeship program. Uh, This year, we actually graduated our first class of apprentices, and they've already moved into full-time jobs. And we started this with 30 apprentices. We moved to 60, 300, and now we're going to have close to 1,000 in this apprenticeship program. And so I encourage everyone in the room, if you're not familiar with this apprentice program, it's like one of the most awesome programs ever to actually... Uh, hire, train, and get these, uh, recruit these military veterans. You can use it for other aspects of uh, diversity and recruitment, but we have really loved it. We hire to the bar of getting these individuals hired, and then we put them through a training. Uh, we, we pay them a portion of their salary while they go through training and after they meet the criteria with working with some community colleges, then we bring them back, we mentor them, and we pay them the rest so they end up getting part of their salary while they're in school, plus training and mentoring being paid for, and then we bring them back full-time and they get about a year of actually training. We'd love this program, Uh, so I highly encourage that. Thank you. And we've also, this is like, to this Right here, we'll change what we need to change, which is education and providing training to the individuals to get the hundreds of thousands of job, job openings filled in cloud computing. We launched a region-wide cloud computing certificate with Los, Los Angeles County this year, and we're now launching 16 sections across the country. We've enrolled already 873 students. And in 2017, we piloted this effort with Santa Monica Community College, and we held two sections there. We taught 83 students. And this year, enrollment at Santa Monica grew 4X already, after just a very short period. So now we have 320 students enrolled, and we are just getting started. And we're, we're already thrilled with the demand that we're seeing around this. And for some of you who were at the Public Sector Summit, we announced our first ever aws uh, associates degree with northern virginia community college and they were kind of the anchor for a statewide program so now we're working with all the universities in virginia and the washington dc area through a consortium so that they'll expand it from a two-year to a four-year degree but today we're taking the steps to replicate this and move faster we started small we scale now we're ready to go fast so we have two more community colleges joining us Uh, Florida Miami-Dade and in Ohio Columbus State Community College so they're gonna launch their cloud associate's degree so we went to the east we went to the west we're coming inward now we're going around the world so we are gonna drive this around the world and this is what's so exciting about this program we are giving them the skills that they actually need to go get a job and be productive. And there's other things that we're doing along the way to really make this a reality. Uh, for, um, with our AWS Educate program, we're adding two more AWS badges for students on Educate. They're the Cloud Builders badge, because we're all builders, and it's the Cloud Inventor badge to provide kind of a clear learning experience but, not, but last but not least, our AWS Pathways will be available in seven new languages, including Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. So we've been hearing, we got Spanish and Portuguese, now we're adding new languages. And they'll be rolled out for everybody over the next few weeks. And underlying all of our efforts is, of course, a commitment to build a diverse and inclusive workforce. A year after launching our We Power Tech program for uh, women diversity and inclusion, we've engaged already more than a thousand technologists and established a presence in eight countries around the world. We also launched a speakers bureau for these women so we can get them trained on speaking and really getting them out in front because that's, that's an important element. And it's through, I'm just really, thrilled to see the impact and again we're just getting going it's a fairly new program Um, we had 47 women from across bahrain that attended our we power tech day in the cloud training just this month and a number of women told us that they want to get aws certified we're like yes we're going to do it we're going to get them all certified and this is what keeps us kind of motivated And putting these women and diverse groups together and kind of letting them see the experience of other women. Because one of the things we hear a lot is there's not enough. So they're like, oh, I don't want to be the lone wolf in the crowd. And so you put them together like they get excited and they begin to share their own experiences. Um, And I'd like to welcome today... Uh, because we're not alone. There's so many of you guys that have these programs I want to welcome today. Trend Micro has brought 30 women from around the world. Stand up if you guys don't care. Yay! Yay! Thank you. And they've sponsored 100% of the cost for these women who are interested in technology to come here to the greatest cloud computing. Uh, program on Earth, reInvent, to share, and they have a program called Close the Gap. And among the activities, they have a full array of things we're going to do. But we decided, Sanjeev and I said, we're going to do speed networking with these uh, young women. And so between the AWS team and Trend Micro, they're going to have a bunch of speed mentoring. So if you guys want to get involved, tell us. They're over here and I know they would love to meet and talk to you all about your experiences and get them super excited so I get them all AWS certified and working in the cloud. Um, So welcome ladies again, it's great to have you guys here. And another important thing that we kind of uh, came up with, because there are so many of the partners and our customers that have close the gap programs. They have diversity inclusion programs. But we kind of all seem to be going out doing our own things. Despite our our efforts, we're not really coming together in these ways to collaborate. So today, Trend Micro and AWS are asking our partners, would you like to help and build a scalable approach together? You can all, of course, do their own thing, but we thought, hey, maybe better together so early next year, we're gonna host a dinner in Washington, D.C. to discuss how we can collaborate and hold similar conversations in around the world. That'll be our kickoff. If you are interested in participating with your company or your agency or group on Close the Gap, if you can please email us at closethegap-dinner at aws at amazon.com we're, we'll connect you, and it's going to be our way to kind of come together and figure out what's a path forward that we can c- kind of bring our collective efforts together. And then finally, today, we're making another update to AWS uh, Educate, which again, we're, we've talked a lot about dreams. This was kind of a dream to have our kind of own AWS tender, I'll call it, uh, but it was a jobs board. And we're starting today, students enrolled in our AWS Educate program can easily search and apply directly to over 3,000 jobs and internships from more than 30 recruiters, including Amazon and our AWS Partner Network, who's agreed to join in on this. So students can set up job alerts, they can uh, target job searches, Uh, including multiple criteria and they can communicate directly with their employer potential employer and then vice versa the employers can search for like skills and location things like that and look at profiles so we are now really making this jobs board a reality and remember the whole goal training certification get a job be productive in this society and create economic development growth in real areas and that's what we're doing right here Um, And then we have an interview accelerator for AWS Educate, which is, with this tool, employers can again set automated process that will accelerate a candidate through the interview cycle. So if they like them, they can accelerate it. So as an example, if a student completes a pathway, they can automatically be invited. So if an employer says, I need them to do that machine learning pathway, once they do that, I actually have a job for them. So they can set alerts and say they have the skills, I need this candidate right now, come, come work for me. <laughs> now, our next speaker, Jackie Keane, who's the Director of Immigration Technology at the UK Home Office, is dedicated to building a cloud culture in her organization. So she's gonna tell you about what's happening at the UK Home Office, and I can, I know it's a lot. So Jackie, welcome to the stage.
6: Hi, good morning everybody. I'm Jackie Keane and for the last five years I've been driving the digital transformation for immigration technology within the UK Home Office. We're here this morning because we're delivering public services, but we're also members of the public and as such we consume those same services, as do our friends and family. So, we've all experienced the good, the bad and some of the really ugly, truly ugly services out there and we know how we feel about that. So what and how we deliver really matters. It mattered that we transformed the immigration operations intelligently, putting the user need at the heart of our digital design. To give you a sense of the challenge, the UK Home Office is a global £2 billion revenue business for UK government. It facilitates 137 million passenger movements per year, 3.5 million visa applications and 25,000 asylum applications. The operational business knew it needed cutting-edge digital services for its customers, but it was being held back by its legacy estate, disparate numerous systems that were yet highly interconnected that were super complex and expensive to change. This is a little bit about our journey over the last few years, what we've learned along the way, and hopefully may help you tackle some of your digital challenges. So in 2013, the UK government announced a policy of cloud first. And it's set about driving an agile user needs focused and digital by default agenda. But in the legacy world of outsourced technology and government, what did agile digital transformation really mean? Was it just about that new website for our customers? Fundamentally though, we knew we had to change. So in the first year from a standing start where we had no team, no tooling, no architecture, no pipeline, we did have Microsoft Office. but not much else. We, we set about building a team, including specialist suppliers, got 80 people on board. We had the beginnings of a delivery pipeline and a roadmap. We created the foundation. Over the next couple of years, we actually really learned what it meant to deliver a global service and run production systems in the cloud. We successfully delivered the MVP of our three major projects, integrating our new digital services into a Brownfield legacy estate. We developed the first iteration of our engineering platform. We underpinned it with a new big data platform that's now a strategic data entity for our department. We really got into the swing of delivery and we found it exciting. And we showed a previously unconvinced business that we could deliver in an agile incremental way and actually generate true value with new digital services coming online for our staff and our customers relatively quickly and regularly. This was new and for some, it was very surprising. Our portfolio began to scale as a result. But with scale, that brought new challenges. We'd been lulled into a full sense of security. Increased management attention was needed to make sure that the now much larger team was appropriately fed and watered, that the work was balanced optimally across the teams. The differing levels of maturity across our teams really impacted the flow of delivery. Some of our infrastructure started to creak under load. We needed to find something more sustainable and scalable. Complex dependencies and closely coupled architecture caused particularly thorny issues for us. So although busy figuring out how we could scale our technology and improve our ways of working, we could not afford to lose sight of the business vision. We had to stay focused. So through 2017, we we focused on solving the really hard problems in a systematic way and ensured that we had the right engineering and flow of work through our teams. We took a really bold approach to this. We undertook a complex migration to public cloud. This is one of the largest that AWS has seen in UK government. We also took the opportunity at that point to re-architect our services to be more cloud native. We leveraged cloud native features to get better resilience and availability. We knew we could reduce complexity, reduce costs, and increase stability as a result. And we really have. Our first step into commoditized services made us think really differently. Enabling our delivery teams to self-serve meant that the individual project teams could build their own infrastructure. Moving our services from pets to cattle meant that we had self-managing, self-healing infrastructure. Containerization ensured that we could be guaranteed that the code would work the same way as it was promoted through the differing environments. Strong core standards and build patterns were fundamental and essential to making this a reality. We empowered the teams to do a lot of this work themselves though. We needed and wanted them to innovate. We put the end-to-end delivery under a microscope and with clear, transparent delivery metrics, we identified the issues, resolved them and accelerated. This transformed not only the technology, but also our business and our portfolio culture. It allowed us to improve pace and predictability for our business. This was a complete game changer for us. So to build a self-sustaining organization, you need really strong foundations based upon a set of core principles and values. We constantly strive to do better, shift left, further develop and empower our teams, promote a culture of continuous improvement and cost optimization. We know that today's businesses will only be successful if they exploit technology. For our job, our challenge actually lies in the way that we run our organization and how we seek to exploit those technologies to deliver true business value. You can and should be bold and ambitious with your vision because we're confident now that it is achievable. The advancement in technology and the way that we consume services will make almost every business aspiration within reach but we need to be skilled in delivery to make that a reality. Momentum takes you places. It really does have a snowball effect. We nurtured confidence through early well-chosen successes, and we got everyone behind us, the business and technology. It's critical to achieve that early traction in your journey. But to do that, you need to build and develop a strong team. Surround yourself with really challenging people. Set a high bar, and then trust in your people to take you there. Build a culture of continual learning and improvement, and you can be guaranteed that things will definitely go wrong, but learn from them. Know that, and don't forget that the learning is also leadership must learn and adapt to. As a footnote to this slide, there's a couple of things that I'd add. Definitely share in your successes, but also it completely pays to have a bit of fun. We established friendly competitions across the team and gamified the process to understand who had really right-sized their environments, who had optimized scheduling effectively, who designed their architecture in the most effective way. We also procured spot and reserved instances. As a result of doing this, exposing the actual challenges and where cost was going, we have saved a 40% cost efficiency in our infrastructure in the last year as a result of this work. So finally, we, we have genuinely transformed the way that the Home Office thinks about and delivers IT now. We're seen as a trusted and uh, essential partner for our business in achieving their ambitions. We've created a professional digital software house with a continuous delivery pipeline, delivering into production daily, not monthly. We have 25 in-fight projects underway at any one time. We have core products being continuously improved and exploited. We now have in excess of 500 staff, motivated staff, comprising of civil servants, contractors and suppliers who are constantly upskilling, learning from each other. The positive impact that our way of working has on our people and our culture is amazing. It's created a really dynamic, energetic, can-do and supportive team. This might have sounded quite a painless journey over the last few years, but I can assure you it definitely wasn't. But if you do it right, the results are truly astounding. It fundamentally changes the pace at which you can deliver business value. So my last thought is, think about where you are on your journey in relation to mine and where your energies are focused today and what's the one thing that you'll do differently to drive your transformation forward. Thank you. Jackie, that was
2: great. Thank you so much. Thank you, that was great. That was amazing. That was a really good lesson in how you do this because it is true. 90% of the time, it's, sometimes culture gets in your way more than anything else. Um, so now, advancing education, we've talked about that. But there's a couple things that I've got to announce. One is we just recently launched at Midnight Madness the AWS RoboMaker. And so RoboMaker, it extends the world's most popular robotics frameworks and connects to the cloud. I can't even explain to you everything this does. It's like so super cool and amazing. And the education team has been busy working with our product team. We've already gotten 12 universities in FIRST Robotics signed up and piloting this. I know Tom Sostrom was there at Midnight Madness talking about it. And so now robotics developers can easily leverage these services, including Amazon Kinesis, Amazon Lex and Poly, and RoboMaker also provides a development environment for simulation services and fleet management service. You can do all your drones, I mean, it's like, it's crazy. So you guys learn about it, go into the show hall, you'll see it, it's very, 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 very cool. So I know all of our universities, their Defense, Intel, NASA, education, everybody's going to use this. And we have students now, by the way, universities, we have over 50 universities that are taking advantage of voice technologies to power their universities and give the students a better experience. So again, 50 universities and growing that are working, and pretty much every day I hear from Andrew and the team or around the world, someone talking about what kind of program can they utilize Amazon Alexa for? So this is kind of something that's really catching on. And to make Amazon Alexa uh, easier, we're launching a university branded bundle that allows customers to purchase Amazon Echo devices and Alexa business license through CDWG, and when I say branded, your Alexas will have their own brand on them for the university. And I've a- actually seen them in many locations already. Um, and we have a university in Canada, Athabasca University. I was just uh, there, and or close by. I was in Canada, and this is one of the schools actually embracing the possibilities of the cloud. They're going all in with AWS. They're going to use the Amazon Echo devices. Kindles and to make the education environment more accessible. And why I think this is a really interesting university is that 83% of these students work while attending school. In addition, 70% of these students, it's the first person from their family that's ever attended university. So this is an important step because bringing new technology quickly to enable this kind of environment is actually uh, very, very cool. And finally, just two weeks ago, I was at Arizona State University, uh, where we launched our Cloud Innovation Center. It's called our KIC, and it's part of our global innovation uh, ecosystem that's growing. And it man- it's managed by Ben Butler, who's out there. I see Ben, um, and we're excited about these efforts. But again, we have a whole community now from Silicon Valley with their uh, IC customers to Washington D.C. with their Peace Tech Accelerator. To Cal Poly, which was our first endeavor into education, our Cloud Scalerator, which I think was our first in Bahrain, and this was uh, to help companies actually scale and learn about cloud, and then in Busan, Korea, where we're doing all kinds of things with the um, government locally, and then now Arizona State University, which is going to be about smart cities. So we look forward to growing more of these, and I'll tell you that's you know. These are so interesting because everyone is unique in doing something very targeted to solve a very specific issue or initiative or solution that they're looking for in that area. And I want all of these to be able to uh, solve. Now, for my last speaker on stage, we're getting to the end, I want uh, the ASU Deputy CIO, John Rome, to come to the stage. He is a complete champion of digital innovation. And I'm excited for him to tell you, I was so blown away by this campus. So I'm excited for John to share with you some of the initiatives that they're taking on. John, go Sparky! Welcome to the stage.
0: Thanks, Lisa. Isn't she great? I mean, come on, isn't she great? Come on, let's get up for her. So the great thing is Arizona State University is no longer the sleepy regional university in Southwest. It's no longer. And it's no longer a secret. Now that Teresa knows, we're like higher ed's best kept secret is no longer a secret. So we're great. Wow, well, well, that's a busy slide. And it's already 830s. But I, I, w- I wanted to mention, I'm really proud of the fact that we are, in a part of our charter, we're, we're known by whom we include. And so the student population diversity actually matches the diversity of the state, which is, is unprecedented. As well as we're also a pretty large place with 111,000 students. Uh, 37 of those are online and also if you look at the retention number which is which is also a great number that's the number of freshmen who come back the second year and for a public education system that's actually growing exponentially that's a great number and also we have some notable collaborations with Starbucks with Adidas and now AWS and you already stole my thunder so um, that's okay <laughs> and as being part of an ASU employee They take away your library card if you don't mention this in your presentations. That ASU is the number one in innovation, four years running. Or I guess for this audience, they take away your IAM roles if you don't do that. And it's a nice set of names up there that we uh, have beat out. Any other higher ed folks in the group? I I won't rub it in. Oh, Harvard in the front? Um, I won't rub it in in too much, but um, good luck next year. (laughs) And I think our CIO says it's best. ASU is helping, AWS is helping ASU with our innovative agenda, and I can't agree with that more. It's also helping us with the compute, with storage, and with workloads as well. So what is ASU's cloud strategy? For many years, it was very cloudy. And I, I mean by we were cloud neutral, and it made things very confused. So I'm glad to say we are AWS first, and where's our sales reps there? In the front, they're, all quite, they're quite happy now, too, that we're, we're AWS first. But I'm really proud of, I'm gonna showcase some of the work we've done over the past years. First of all, I think we've built a world-class mobile app. Chris, Chris Richardson, one of my colleagues in the front here, has, his team has built an amazing app, 55,000 downloads since the start of the semester, and, and heavy adoption and usage, really proud about that. We've also built out a data lake. We released our analytics environment using Redshift, EMR, S3, you name it. We of the analytics um, services, we're actually using those as part of our solution. But I think really what AWS is letting us do is showing us the art of the possible. And Teresa was fortunate. We were fortunate for, to have her, to have her visit our stadium football suite, where we showed what was the art of the possible. It was Alexa enabled. It we had sensors to tell whether the water was on, whether the recycle bins were getting full, whether the seats were full. And my favorite is the celebrity doppelganger. And Teresa, who did you look like again? Very
2: beautiful, I'm sure. I, I totally agree.
0: <laughs> but it's doing that as well. And speaking of Alexa, we're also becoming very cloud-enabled on our campus. And as I say, Alexa goes to college. And so last fall, um, 1,500 engineering freshmen in a brand new residence hall got echo dots. And the response from the students w- were amazing. You can see how happy they are right there. And I think within four days, we had um, one of the students had actually certified a skill. We also released our official ASU um, skill, where we could, the students could ask up to 500 questions, anything from what time are these buildings open to what events are happening on campus. Some really great work there. And to follow on, um, we also put Alexa in the classroom as well. And so several faculty members are now in programming classes, are taking a few weeks of, of, that, of, their, of their course and actually teaching Alexa skills. And you can see some of the students right there. On one of the class projects was how do I get a robot to be um, Alexa-enabled, and it was really, really great stuff. And finally, one of the best stories from this last fall, and I'm looking at Andrew and Ann and others in the front, we actually did, we had a program called the AI Scholars. And we were actually trying to recruit top out-of-state scholars to come to ASU, and if they did come to ASU, they got a free Echo Dot, okay, not too much, okay, that's $40 now, they also got a golden ticket to win $5,000 in scholarship dollars, 10 of them, and also 10 of them would win a free trip to Amazon headquarters to meet Jeff Bezos. Well, I lied about the Jeff Bezos, but, (laughs) so they get to meet Ann and others instead, but we had... We had 700 students sign up, and it was great. And we, we, we just held our hackathon. And um, it was just it was amazing to see the type of talent that we had in the, in the room there and what had happened there. So really, what was my favorite Alexa student project? Was it the robot? There was actually another robot, a, a dog robot, that could actually lift its leg and take care of business. But actually, I think my favorite was this. One of our students, Alexa enabled a big mouth Billy Bass. And I would show you a video today, but what happened, it was used so much, we actually burnt out the motor, and we need to go to eBay to buy a new one. But I, I just have to tell you, it's pretty creepy having that Alexa's voice come out of that fish. <laughs> so here's a picture with Anne, with our AI scholars, and it was just a great moment for her to spend the time with our students. It was really uh, a, nice, uh, a nice moment. You'll also notice that they're doing some things with their hands. Do you see that? So. All right, I think I'm gonna test everybody. Okay, this is our pitchfork, and when you go to football games, this is what our students do. So everybody do it now. You can't leave until you do it. All right, good, that's, all right, enough of that tomfoolery. And in and here, we, there's, Sparky also delivered a personalized jersey to Teresa. isn't that great? Letting her know, and she's letting Sparky know who's actually in charge. And I think, you know, you already stole our thunder, but we're really happy. This was a probably three years in the making to bring an innovation center to our campus. It's gonna be, we're hoping to open it up in February. I see Ben and others out in the audience who, are, who helped made it happen. But it's gonna be at our SkySong campus. We actually had 300 attend the, the summit, and these were folks from these mayor's um, m- municipalities, and they're already lining up, how do I be part of that? If you want to learn more about it, go to smartchallenges.asu.edu to do that. Okay, so I actually brought my girlfriend with me. My wife doesn't like when I say that. But her her name is Alexa. And so, how many of you have one of these things? Do you know about these things? I think, anyway, Alexa, who's the most innovative university?
3: Arizona State University is, duh. How else do you think I'd be able to answer your questions? Yeah,
0: I agree that we are the most innovative university. Kept, and we're a great place. And also, I just have one more thing before I close. The PR folks told me I couldn't play this. But, you know, Teresa and I decided that we're going to do it anyway. I guess not. They took it out. All right. PR rules, okay, we, we had a great question of who is, who is um, we asked Alexa who is your favorite Amazon employee? I guess you'll just have to go out to our school and find out, so. <laughs> anyway.
4: Thanks, Thanks thank you so
2: much. I had such a fun time on their campus and I got to meet the students. I did get to go see how they were using AI. It was amazing, and the students had written skills. They gave uh, scholarships, and one, there there were two, but the one that really caught my attention was two of the students had written a skill for mental health for the students, which I thought was really good. So if you were feeling under stress or had anxiety, you would ask Alexa to call your caregiver, and then Alexa would walk you through a sequence of activities to calm you down counting, breathing. It was very, I mean, I, was, I thought it was such a great idea. And that, of course, of course, is up on their Alexa skills. So thank you for the wonderful opportunity and seeing what you all are doing. And the thing that I'll just share is the partnership between the university and the government is going to be really unbelievable on what uh, problems that they're going to be able to solve. Um, so I think uh, maybe went too soon. Um, so last but not least, we're at the end, so I'm, just, I'm gonna wrap it up here, but there's a few housekeeping items. Do not forget to continue to accelerate your cloud journey. I want you to make sure to go to Andy's keynote tomorrow morning on Wednesday and Werner's on Thursday. Attend all the public sector chalk talks and builder sessions. Attend the We Power Tech sessions. We're gonna have a lightning round here uh, quick after this session. Uh, Be sure to explore just the entire reInvent campus and just get out to the AWS Village, see all of the different partners and companies and technologies that are there on the sponsors and booths. And also, June 10th through 12th, Public Sector Summit in Washington, D.C. Be there, be square. And most important, do not forget to show up at our party tomorrow night lost in worldwide public sector space. So I want you all to show up. We're gonna have so much fun at Dre's Nightclub. Uh, It'll be consumed by everything public sector. And my last thing is I want you guys to give me ideas for themes for our party next year. I had one, I thought about AWS Comic-Con, around like Public Sector Comic-Con. But give us ideas because we want your thoughts on themes for next year's party. I am so honored to be up here. My team is so honored to support all of you all. Thank you again for attending reInvent this breakfast and I will see you soon, bye.